Welcome to the Washington Church Toledo Podcast. Together, we are learning to encourage one another to walk with God through cultivating a personal relationship with Jesus the Christ. This podcast consists of recordings from our Sunday morning worship services and other teaching events that you are more than welcome to come join us live. And, uh, and I've seen that look before in my house. And, you know, the look at where something's wrong, where your body's just not quite right. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? Where you're, like, stiff and not moving, and you're like, oh, something's right. So I asked her about it, and she shared with me. And I, I said, Tiffany, let's go get prayer. And so I took her um, down the hallway. Our prayer team that is available to pray over people and for people uh, during the service, uh, they meet together down the hall, and and every time it's it's a good time to be in there. And I walked her down there. I said, Tiffany... Let's have them pray for you. And so she's like, she was totally open to it. She's like, absolutely, they can pray. So literally, she was barely moving her neck and, and her arms in, in a great amount of pain. So I'll let you take it from there. Um, I just stood right in the middle because I feel like I couldn't even sit. Um, on the way here in the car, I was just in pain, and I couldn't even bridge it when I first walked in. I, like, I couldn't move my neck, and I was like looking off to the side, and... Um, she said, are you okay? And I was like, no, not really. Um, I was like, it's just better if I don't look straight ahead because uh, I'm not in so much pain. And um, it, it hurt to just take a deep breath. I felt like I had to have apply a lot of pressure on my neck just to take a deep breath. And um, just in the five or 10 minutes that um, they were praying over me, they put their hands on me and just praying for healing. Um, I said, I can take a deep breath without it being an excruciating pain, and um, one of the words that Anne prayed was to settle, and I just felt like tension and that tightness you get when you're in pain, um, just release, and um, I walked in and sat down. I was able to sit down in the pew um, next to my husband, and after the first song, um, I looked at him, and I was like, turned my head in both directions, and I still have a twinge of pain, but I can take a deep breath, and I can sit down, and <laughs> just praise God. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. All right, should I keep this one, Randy? Okay, I'll keep, I'll switch over to this one. Uh, the second piece that we're going to go into this morning um, is discipleship. So we started with community. In, in our talk, and now we're moving to discipleship, and so that's where we're going to be. Uh, discipleship has always been a core piece for me in my life. It's always been something that has been prevalent and present and in front of me, and it's something I've always longed for, but not always had. So I've had pieces of it growing up, um, and I was active in the church. I was in a small group and discipled by a youth leader, um, and but one of the reasons I ended up in Toledo, Ohio, is because I wanted to be discipled. And I had met uh, the former pastor, Pastor Don, and I wanted to be mentored and discipled by him. And so I moved from California to Toledo to be discipled, to experience discipleship. And about 10 years ago, God put it on my heart to, to create some sort of discipleship program here at Washington. And so I started to move on that and act on that um, Three years ago, we launched that. Four years ago, I wrote a book for it. Probably most of you don't know that, that I wrote a book on discipleship. 
And we've been working through that, and people have been working through that, been a part of those groups, and everybody's invited to be a part of it at some point. Um, But what I want to share this morning is about discipleship. Not only my heart for discipleship, but I think what God's Word says about discipleship. Because we, I think we oftentimes will miss it. We read the text, and, and whenever we read the scriptures, we always read our own agenda into the scriptures. We always read the scriptures in light of our own experience. And so we take our Western culture and our Western mentality, and we kind of pour it in there. But what we don't see is the, the, the subtleness of what's in the text um, based on the culture. And so I want to show you some of that this morning and kind of open our eyes to that. And after I'm done talking, after I'm done sharing, because we're going to spend this month on discipleship and what does that mean, I'm going to invite you to recommit your life in light of a disciple of Jesus. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to eventually talk about the difference between a student and a disciple. And I think a lot of us approach our life and our faith as students, not as disciples. So if you have your Bibles, open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We're going to start there. And we're going to read this story that you've probably read many times and hopefully as you've read it, it's, it's puzzled you, or you haven't known how to explain it or what to, to, to make sense of it. And that, at least that's how I came at it when I first saw it. We're going to um, start in verse 16. So this is after Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. He's gone into the desert. He's been tempted. He comes out, and he basically starts his ministry. And this is how he starts. Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee. This is verse 16. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever wondered why they just left everything and went? How many of you guys have wondered that before, reading this story? Okay? The rest of you totally understand that story? All right, good. Um, I've always wondered that. Why would they just drop everything they are doing and go follow this guy that they don't even know? And even these two, two sons, they left their father behind. And they went and followed this guy, reckless abandon, just went all in and went for it. The question becomes, why? And if we don't understand the culture to which Jesus grew up in, we won't understand the why behind this. Why he could simply say, come follow me, and they literally drop everything and go. And this, we're talking about Peter here. So Simon, is, is who will become renamed as Peter, he's a married man. And he leaves behind. He doesn't leave his wife, but he goes and he follows Jesus, and he goes through this commitment and walking with Jesus. I think it's, it's important that we're able to answer that question of why as followers of Jesus ourselves. What I want to do is walk you through the cultural understanding of what discipleship meant in the time of Jesus, because it's radically different than what it means today to be a disciple of Jesus. And what I believe we need to do is is figure out how in our Western culture, in this day and age, get back closer to what the scriptures mean by discipleship than what we've allowed discipleship to mean in our own culture. So in the, in the culture that Jesus grew up in, he grew up in the Galilean region. It was north of Jerusalem, about 105, 90 to 105 miles north of, of the main kind of epicenter of Judah and, and Jerusalem. And up there they had an educational system. 
Okay, the first part of the educational system was called Beit Safar in Hebrew. Okay, and I'll, I'll go ahead and put it up in the slide. Beit Safar meant house of the book. So every kid, every male child, 5 to 12, and, and actually the women would join in at, at this age, would go and they'd learn. They'd go to the local synagogue and they would be taught by the rabbi in the synagogue. And at age, it's like going to kindergarten. They'd go off. So they believed in the education system very highly. Why? Because hundreds of years before, their people were taken into exile because of their disobedience. And because they didn't follow after God's word and they abandoned his commandments. And so God allowed a nation to come in and take them away out of the promised land. So when, after they returned to the promised land, a group of, of people, men, got together, these 70 men, and they decided never again would we allow this to happen. And so they instituted a form of education that would teach their children and everyone what God's word was and how to obey it. And so this is what they did. So they would show up at age five. Everyone would get uh, access to a Torah. They'd, they'd see it. The rabbi would come in and un, unroll the scroll and read from it. And they would become passionate about it. They're taught that the Torah was life. The Torah gave meaning. The Torah gave purpose. This is the very word of God. And they began to memorize it, put it to memory. The first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In that time between 5 and 12, they would memorize that much. How much scripture are we memorizing? How many songs do we have memorized? If I start playing a Taylor Swift song, I bet you many of you could jump up and start singing along. How much of God's word do we have ingested in us? The women at the time would focus on Psalms, Deuteronomy, and Proverbs. And that would be the end of their experience. They would go back to their homes and learn how to be, to be um, wives and moms. And their mothers would train them. But the, the boys would go on. So you'd, after, after 12, the boys could go on. If they had memorized the Torah, they were allowed to move on. The next section was called Beit Midrash, which was in, in English, house of study. And a house of study would be from 12 to 15 years old. So they would have studied the, uh, the Torah, the first five books. Now they would expand and move beyond into the prophets and then the other writings, what they call the wisdom literature, the wisdom writings. So Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon. And it's what the Hebrews call today Tanakh. How many of you guys have heard of the word Tanakh? Okay. Tanakh is basically the entire Hebrew Bible. It's a way of saying the entire Hebrew Bible. So go to the next slide. I want to show you why they use the word Tanakh. It's, it's a, an abbreviation. So the, Tanakh is Torah, the first five books of Moses, what they say. The Navim, which are the prophets, and the Ketavim, which are the writings, the wisdom literature. So you put that together, and they, they form this word Tanakh out of that, which means the whole of the scriptures. And so from that age of 12 to 15, they would study the whole of the scriptures in light of the Tanakh. And if the boys could make it through that, that was a big deal. But most of them didn't make it through. It was too intense and too hard. And so at the same time as you entered into this at age 12 um, and you started studying with the rabbis, you would also begin to be apprenticed by your father. So whatever trade he had, you inherited that trade. So if, so if your dad's a fisherman, you become a fisherman. If your dad's a stonemason, you become a stonemason. If your dad works with metals, you become metals, and on and on and on. You did what your father did. And that was, that was just the culture and the society. 
But again, it's, it's a lot. And they began to not only memorize the Torah, but they memorized also the, the prophets, and they began to memorize the writings. And if you go to Israel today, if you have the opportunity to ever go to Israel today, and you run into somebody who actually lives there, a young Jewish boy, and you pull him aside and you ask him a question about the scriptures, he'll begin to quote the scriptures to you. I've done it before. It's wild. It is absolutely mind-blowing. And then his eyes get really big and he gets excited and he's kind of like, ask me another one. Let me show you what I got. White guy from America. <laughs> if, if somehow they are able to finish this, there is a third part that they can move on to. But this third part that they can move on to called Beit Talmud. And Beit Talmud is literally the cream of the crop. Okay, so if you make it to this point at, uh, at, at 15 years old, you've literally memorized the Torah and you've memorized large portions of the, the prophets and the other writings. And you've studied a great deal with the rabbis of the area. This is like uh, Ivy League, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Princeton type students. Right? So most don't make it to this point. Most will, won't make it through the second section of Beit Midrash, they'll go on to be to work for their parents, their fathers, they'll apprentice, and that's a great life. But they've got within them the Torah, right? Because every kid goes through that process. And the way that you become uh, in, enter into Beit Talmud is that you will go and you'll you'll decide which rabbi do I want to to sit at the feet of and learn from. So there's two types of rabbis here, which is important to understand. There's the synagogue rabbis, which are your basic rabbis, which would be like myself, right? A pastor at a church where they're over that synagogue. Their job is to teach um, and preach on Sundays and, and teach classes and teach the children. And then you have another group of rabbis that were rabbis with authority, it was called. Okay, in Hebrew, it's shmiha. And if you were a rabbi of authority, then you could take on disciples, but if you weren't a rabbi with authority, you couldn't take disciples on. And if you were a rabbi with authority, then you had the permission to teach and expound on the text itself. Now, if you look at different scripture passages early on in the Gospel of Mark, you see Jesus teaching in the synagogues, and people respond to his teaching in the synagogues, and they say what to him? He teaches as one with authority. They're not just saying he's really good at teaching. What they're doing is they're saying he's a rabbi that's in this elite group of people who actually has the authority. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? And so this group are the ones that have disciples. And so they select disciples because they want to continue their teachings or their understandings of the scriptures and have it go on from generation to generation and last long after they, they're dead. And that teaching of a rabbi is called his yoke. So in, I'll give you an example of scripture, Matthew eleven twenty eight, when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is talking about his teachings. That's his yoke. Again, how do we read that? Is that this thing that you put over like an animal? That's what a yoke does is, is you yoke things together. But in that culture, a yoke was the teachings of the rabbi. And so what he lays upon you is his teachings. 
And so, again, if you made it to this point where you were qualified to go and petition yourself to a rabbi, you would go and you'd sit at their feet and you would basically say, I want to be your disciple. And the rabbi would then grill you to death to see if you were worthy and you were capable of handling his yoke or his teachings. And so literally it would be hours or days of questions being asked of you. You'd have to answer life. I mean, just he's going to test how well is your memory of the scripture? How well is your understanding of this? Do you know the prophets? How do you understand the prophets? Um, if, if you are deemed unworthy and the rabbi did not want to take you on as his disciple, he would say, you are very blessed. You, I see you've worked very hard. But I'm not able to call you as my disciple. Go home and work with your father. And once word got out that one rabbi said no to you, it would be really hard for another one to pick you up and, and take you on as a zone because if that rabbi said no, then this rabbi is probably going to say no. And so you, you had one, maybe two shots, depending on how quickly word moved, and you could get around. And that was about it. But again, we're talking about a very elite, very small amount of people that could get to this place and be there. If, though, they thought you were worthy... And they thought you had great potential. You could carry on their yoke and they could, you could understand and, and you, you could even take further what they were going to teach you. They would say three words to you. Come, follow me. And what that meant was that you were worthy enough. You were good enough. You were being invited to be a part of this system and to carry on these traditions. And you were honorable enough to be considered a disciple of this rabbi, and it would be the greatest privilege of your life to say yes to that. Now, take that understanding. Let's go back into the scriptures and look at this scene again. Mark 1.16 it says, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Let's stop right there. What does this tell us about Andrew and Peter? They didn't make the cut. Why? How do we know they didn't make the cut? They're fishermen, right? So they're doing what their father did. And one of the ironic things about Peter as a fisherman, if you ever read through the Gospels, he is a terrible fisherman. He literally doesn't catch anything until Jesus says, try it this way. And then, he does, and then he's amazing. But both times you see Peter, he's, he's, he's struggling as a fisherman, Right? And so Jesus comes to these two fishermen, which means they didn't make the A team, probably or the B team. So somewhere in the middle, they failed out or flunked out or maybe gave up, and they went and apprenticed themselves to their father, and they learned the trade of being a fisherman. And he says to these guys who failed and flunked out, come follow me. What is Jesus saying to Peter and Andrew? Come be my disciples. I'm calling you to be in this elite group of people who will learn my yoke, take on my teachings, and then you will take my teachings out into the world and you will keep that going long after I'm gone. Back up even farther. So in that last piece of discipleship, that was 15 to age 30. How old was Jesus when he started his ministry? So I remember when I was a kid, my wife would take me to this uh, Bible bookstore, and there wasn't a ton of them back in that day. It was before um, 
this this huge conglomerate went and basically took over the U.S. in, in Bible bookstores. Um, but the Carpenter Bookstore was near us. It was like a it was like driving from here to Perrysburg to get there. So it wasn't super close, but it wasn't that far away. And my mom would literally take me there anytime I wanted and buy me anything I wanted because she just wanted me to be excited about being a follower of Jesus. Because I wasn't really into the music. I was kind of, uh, and so if I showed any inkling, and actually there was like this, I think once a month she would drive myself and my sister down there and say like, pick this out or pick that out. So I decided since I wasn't great at school, I found this bookmark I remember I still have it in my, one of my old Bibles in my office. And in the bookmark, it just talked about Jesus and who he was and where he came from. And at the bottom, it said, and he was this uneducated man. And I circled that, and I showed that to my parents. And I said, see, I don't need to go to college. I want to be like Jesus. But that was very naive on my part, and, and I think a lot of Westerners have no idea the extent of education that Jesus received was unbelievably deep. No doubt he would have, been, he would have sat at the feet of rabbis, and there's different scholars that, that have theories on who his rabbi was. And so he, went, he himself submitted himself to that process and came out the other side and at 30, began as a rabbi, which was super rare, by the way. Usually those guys didn't start until their 40s taking on disciples. But Jesus, obviously a unique situation, being God. And so he himself was in that process, but he began to call disciples and invite them to be a part of his group. And that's what's going on in this scene. And I think we miss that unless we see it. So now we begin to see this is why they dropped everything. Because they were being invited to be disciples, which was the greatest honor that any man could have. Much greater than fishermen, much greater than anything else, tax collecting, as he goes and he he selects these disciples. I don't think one of the disciples was on the A-team. I think they were all doing something else when he went around and he called them to be his disciples. This is why they drop everything. This is why they go. I don't think Zebedee was ticked at all. I think he ran home and told his wife, you'll never believe what happened. Our sons that are at fishing were called to be a disciple of this guy, Jesus, Rabbi Jesus. Not just any rabbi, but a rabbi with authority. Can you believe it? And, and Mrs. Zebedee probably celebrated. Yes, the boys are out of the house it was a big deal to be called by Jesus to be a disciple or any rabbi at the time. But oftentimes we look at discipleship and we see that as somebody who knows what the teacher knows. But that's not discipleship, that's a student. What does a Talmudim? What does the disciple want? More than anything in their life, their desire is to be like the rabbi in every single way. So when the rabbi would stand, the disciples would stand. When the rabbi would sit, the disciples would sit. When the rabbi would open up the scriptures and read, they would listen intently. When the rabbi would eat, they would eat, and they would pay attention to how he ate. And when he interacted with people, you can bet the disciples are right there watching Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees. But in our culture, in our Western culture, in our Western churches, we've decided that discipleship looks like showing up Sunday once a week for an hour to an hour and 15 minutes. 
depending on how long the preacher preaches. Maybe opening the scriptures and reading during the week and trying to have a daily quiet time. Maybe playing some worship music on the way to work. That is not discipleship. That's trying to kind of keep the pulse going. Discipleship is giving your entire being of all of who you are, that everything, if you're married, it's your marriage. If you're a parent, it's your children. Whatever finances you have, your worship life, your church, your community, all of it is held up and said the question, how does Jesus view this and what would Jesus do with this? And I want to do exactly what Jesus did. And in every fiber of my being, I want to be like my rabbi. That's discipleship. That's what the invitation is. That's what the call is. When Jesus says, come and be my disciples, that's what he means. But through time and generation, we've lost that peace. And I think that's why we end up how we are. When I created the discipleship program at Washington, I reached out to, to, I can't, countless amount of churches. I read about 20 books on discipleship. I was looking for something, anything. I didn't set out to write my own book. I set out to find something to bring to Washington and run at. I couldn't find a thing that I was pleased with or happy with that lived into or pressed into that idea of what Jesus talks about. And time after time, I'd talk to churches, tell me about your discipleship program. And I'd either hear, we don't have one, or it's basically a Bible study, or a small group. That's not discipleship. That's studying, which is great. We need to study. That has its place. But discipleship is literally handing ourselves over with every part of our being to be more like Jesus. It's an all-consuming fire. Jeremiah put it best in Jeremiah 20, verse 9. He says this, But if I say I will not mention his word, meaning God's word, or speak any more in his name as a prophet, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. That's what discipleship is. It's a fire that burns in us, that we can't hold inside ourselves. And we could do nothing but let it out because it's not meant to, to stay inside. It's meant to come out. It's the invitation to be more like Jesus. Come, follow me. The three most profound words any disciple can hear from a rabbi. It means that their life is about to profoundly change. It means that they've been invited into something so much greater than themselves. It means that they are to be like Jesus. Now, when Jesus chooses these fishermen, this B-list group or C-list group, what does that tell us about the character of God? What does that say? Yeah. 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 He works. Yeah. Good. Good. Why didn't Jesus choose the cream of the crop? Those would have been like the Pharisees, right? Why didn't Jesus choose those people to be his disciples? He's changing things. Why else? Their heads are already full. 
They were pretty stuck in their ways, probably, very rigid in how they saw things. He literally went out and found a group of people that would be so open and so pleased to be considered worthy. They'd be like sponges ready to learn and ready to do. And, and by the way, these guys are probably close to 15 years old when Jesus calls them. Most of us don't see that. There's a story I could show you from the text. Basically, Peter was probably 20 or 21 because there's a, there's a story, if you're familiar with it, where Jesus goes to the temple and they have to pay. So if, if you are over 20 or 21, you have to pay a temple tax to get in. One of the things that the, they had created, uh, one of the vices that the Sadducees had set up. And so uh, there's a moment where, where they catch a fish, actually. I think one of the times that Peter actually catches a fish. Um, and, he, and in the fish's mouth is a denarii. And so the cost of entry into the temple was half a denarii for each male over the age of, of 20 or 21. I can't remember which one it is. And so most likely it is for Peter and for Jesus. That means the rest of these guys, this ragtag group, these 11 others, are less than 20 years old when Jesus calls them. So he gets these young men and he trains them up. And what do they do? They transform the world. And they continue the yoke, and they, they want nothing more than to be like their rabbi. And they live out their lives with great passion. And the authority that God gave them, that Jesus bestowed upon them before he left. I want to leave you with this verse. John chapter 15, verse 16. This is what Jesus says. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. So John, who's writing this, is recalling what's being said. And he was a disciple of Jesus, so he remembers that moment when he was called and he was chosen. And so he wants to make sure that he gets this note in there about when Jesus speaks and says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. How did the system work? You went... And you chose a rabbi, and you hope that they would select you, right? And Jesus is saying, it didn't work that way. I chose you, and I called you, which means he thought they were worthy. Now, I think a lot of us read this scripture passage, and we think that this is solely about salvation. And yes, that applies, but it's so much more than just being saved, when Jesus says that I chose you, if you're sitting here in this room this morning and you have a relationship with Jesus, that means Jesus chose you. And if Jesus chose you, what does that mean that he thinks of you? That you're worthy. Worthy to do what? Transform the world. Carry his yoke. To be like him in every way possible. That's what we're talking about here at Washington Church. That's why it's in our vision. That's why the vision team chose this word, that we would be disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what the phrase says, that we are a community of disciples of Jesus Christ because they believed that God was calling us into a deeper state of discipleship. And I agree. And they saw that it was already taking place within our church, and they said, this is an important thing. We need to keep this going. John says, that Jesus says to us that not only does he choose us, but he chooses us to go and to bear fruit, but lasting fruit. And then he says this statement that blows our minds, or it should blow our mind if we're paying close attention to it. He says, whatever you ask in my Father's name, I will give to you. 
In other words, as you're going and as you're bearing eternal fruit, the actions that you're pouring out and the way that you're going into the world and what you need to do those things, God's going to give you because God wants those things to happen. Amen? And that's the invitation to us this morning. So it's crucial to understand that, that if you are, if you have a relationship with Jesus, that means he thinks you are worthy. And I think some of us here have this mentality that we are maybe on not even the B team or the C team or the D team or the F team, that we're just lucky to slide in. And we're just kind of hanging out and waiting for heaven to come. And that will be a glorious day when Jesus returns. But that's not what it means to be a disciple. What it means to be a disciple is to say, Lord, you think I'm worthy. It's a, it's a transformation of identity. We have to begin to see ourselves in a new light, in a new way. And once we do that, we begin to realize, Lord, you think I'm worthy, and you've given me this task. You've laid your yoke upon me, and you've called me to go out into the world and transform this world. And so I can, because you are with me. And everything that I need, you said that you'd provide for me, and you'd give me. And we like to think that that's the job of pastors or missionaries or elders or super elite spiritual people. But no, no, no. If you have a relationship with Jesus, it's your job description as well. It's all of our job descriptions. So how do we begin to move from looking at this as students and shifting into discipleship? What I want to do to end our time together, Bridget's going to play a song. We're going to sing. But before we get to that point, I felt like we needed to have an opportunity to respond to this invitation, to say yes and to stand before the Lord and and to hold each other accountable. And so I want to share this with you. I'm going to walk through this statement. I'm going to read it to you. And then I'm going to invite you, if, if you are willing to commit to this this morning, to stand and speak it with me out loud. So I want to show you what you're committing to first. I'm not going to try and trick you in any way, but all of this comes from the scriptures and what I believe God is inviting us into. This is what it says. I acknowledge that Jesus has chosen me to be his disciple. That's what we just talked about. That Jesus believes that I am capable of taking on his yoke and continuing his ministry. I want nothing more than to be like Jesus and to be obedient to the word of God. Okay, These are not light phrases. So if you're not ready to say yes to this, stay in your seat. But if you're ready, seeking first the kingdom of God, proclaiming the good news of the gospel, worshiping with passion, praying without ceasing, loving the church and serving her faithfully, spending time daily in God's word and in prayer, learning how to to become more and more like Jesus. I commit to go to bear lasting fruit and to believe that the Father will give me whatever I ask in his name to do his will going into all the world and making disciples. This is the invitation for us at Washington Church. This is what discipleship means. So go back to the beginning, Grace. We're going to start over. If you want to stand for this with me, I invite you to stand right now to commit to to these words as a disciple of Jesus. Moving yourself from a status of a student into one who's fully committed to saying yes to Jesus. And let's say these words together as a community, and let's remember them. And I'll put, we'll post a copy of them on Facebook, and we'll email them out to you so you can remember what you've committed. But as you speak these words, I want you to, to say them to, unto the Lord. And maybe a part of this is that we need to say, Lord, forgive me for falling short. Forgive me for settling, for being a student and not, and not a disciple of yours. But I want to be your disciple. 
from this day forward. And I want to give myself fully to you. Let's speak these words together as a community of faith. I acknowledge that Jesus has chosen me to be his disciple. That Jesus believes that I am capable of taking on his yoke and continuing his ministry. I want nothing more than to be like Jesus and to be obedient to the word of God. Seeking first the kingdom of God. Proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Worshiping with passion and praying without ceasing. Loving the church and serving her faithfully. Spending time daily in God's word and in prayer, learning how to become more and more like Jesus. I commit to go, to bear lasting fruit, and to believe that the Father will give me whatever I ask in his name to do his will, going into all the world and making disciples. Father, hear our words this morning. Hold us to this. Raise us up to be more and more like your son, Jesus. And may we not forget who we are. May we transition, Lord, from being a student of the scriptures or being a student of yours that has interest and spends time to one who's fully devoted, sold out for you, wanting to do and have nothing more than to be considered a disciple of Jesus. Would you transform us into the image and the likeness of your son, Jesus? transform our lives forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at office at washingtonchurch.org or go to our website, washingtonchurch.org.